Dr. Kim Lim received her veterinary degree with honors from the University of Melbourne in 1990. She then entered small animal practice and was certified in veterinary acupuncture by the International Veterinary Acupuncture Society in 1992. She earned a master's degree in animal chiropractic from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology in 2000. She has also completed the animal rehabilitation program from the Canine Rehabilitation Institute. She has been in integrated veterinary medicine practice since 1996. Dr. Lim currently owns a solo practice in Geelong, Australia. She is also a national international speaker and has served the Australian Veterinary Chiropractic Association, the Australian Veterinary Acupuncture Group, and the Geelong Australia Veterinary Association. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Lim as we discuss her veterinary school experience, her introduction to integrated medicine, and how integrated medicine has changed the way she practices. Dr. Lim, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Neil. Glad to be here. So where were you born? I was born in Malaysia, um, and we migrated to Australia when I was about 12, the whole family, moved from primary school to high school, so big, big jump. A big culture change or no? Yes, big culture change. You kind of, you know, when you're a kid and you move, you kind of think it's a holiday, and then suddenly you realize you're never going home. And there were four kids in the family, so mum and dad could never afford to go home. So I didn't actually get to go back to Malaysia till I was in uni. And I went with a girlfriend and my sister. But yeah, we kind of landed in middle-class white suburbia in Melbourne. Um, Not many Asians. And I was a teenager then, well, nearly a teenager. So you either sink or swim. Had many elocution lessons at lunchtimes and recess at school where they made me repeat words over and over and all that sort of stuff. But I survived. They were memories that I tried to bury for many years, but I've now acknowledged they're part of who I am. Yeah. Um, so was was picking up the language difficult? Well, I spoke English anyway, but with, with an accent and and you know when you when you go back to that suburb where we moved to probably 80% of the kids there in the high schools are asian now but when i was there there were maybe two per per um year level in the high school and and you know this high school had maybe 1500 1500 kids or something so it was quite big um bit of a culture shock and and for many years i tried to pretend to be more Australian or more Aussie and deny my um, my heritage, but it's okay now. Oh, that's great. So when did you decide that maybe veterinary medicine was something you wanted to do? Well, you know, there was no deep and meaningful reason for this. I kind of remember that when I was in kinder and I was about maybe five, I said I wanted to be a scientist, but The memory I remember is that I was outside typing in year nine, so I was probably maybe 15, and I was waiting for the class to start, and we were all lined up, and typing was on one side and careers was on the other, and there was a notice board, and I looked at that notice board, and there were all the different courses you could do when you went to university, 
and I looked down them and, you know, when you're that age, you really have no clue. I mean, the top of the list was actuary and it's like, what is that? And right down the bottom was vet and I went, oh, I know what a vet is. I think I'll be a vet. So no deep and meaningful reason. But, yeah, I kind of remembered I had a rabbit too that died of Khaleesi virus, as most rabbits do. Oh, not Khaleesi. What's it called? Myxomatosis. And I yeah. thought, well, I want to I want to save that. So that's what I did. And, again, when I entered the university doing vet science, there weren't many Asians there either. So whether I'm a pioneer or I'm just really stubborn and don't follow the rules, kind of that's my path. <laughs> And maybe that's part of integrated medicine too, where you go out on a limb and you go for things you're interested in. You bet. So you had three siblings? Three siblings. Yes, I'm the eldest. My Then I've got uh, a sister, brother who's number three, and then another sister who my younger sister's also a vet, but a conventional vet and, and we're chalk and cheese, very different. <laughs> so I usually say despite me, because I don't think she really admired me as an older sister. She became a vet. I have no reason, no idea why she did that. (laughs) Does she practice close to you now? No, she's up in Melbourne and I'm in a regional centre, maybe about 80 kilometres away from out of of Melbourne in Geelong. Um, So, yep, we don't see that often, but, you know, I go up to Melbourne every now and then to to visit my mum when I can. Although COVID's made things quite difficult still, we soldier on and we're definitely in a much better situation than many other countries. So I'm grateful for that. Good, good. So what was it uh, odd or was it difficult being the first to go to university then in your family? Uh, no, it's, you know, if you know anything about the Asian culture, they kind of, you finish school, you go to university, and you become a doctor or a lawyer. It's, it's just the model. And and my rebelliousness, I guess, was that I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer, and I would have made a terrible doctor because I don't like people at all and I don't like touching them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, and, and, and that, you know, it, I've, been, I've been lucky that I've fallen into what I love doing but I kind of think that I've kind of got the personality where I would make a good thing out of whatever I did, regardless of what I chose. That makes sense. So how many options did you have as far as applying to vet school? What's, I don't know the situation there. Um, well, I finished high school in 1985. I only remember this because I've still got the T-shirt that says HSC 1985, <laughs> uh, and you know my sister, my second sister, who I'm quite close to, is an interior designer, and she's very arty. And sometimes she looks at me and goes, "Kim, I swear those are the sort of clothes you used to wear in high school." And I went, "Those are the clothes I used to wear in high school. <laughs> What's wrong with them? <laughs> I haven't got any holes." Um, but. There there were five vet schools, I think, in those days. So let me think. Sydney, Melbourne, Queensland, maybe four, and Murdoch. But I was I went straight from high school to university and I wasn't very uh, worldly at that stage. So I kind of went, well, there's only one option in Victoria and that's the one that I'm applying for. 
Um, and and luckily I got in. So so really I was quite naive and and not grown up at all when I went to university. But that's your journey, you know. Everyone has a different journey. Did you enjoy uh, your vet school? Um, probably. Well, some of it I did, but I kind of think it was part of my journey. Um, I made some friends that I've still got and the other people are kind of, you know, not really my cup of tea. Um and I didn't really like memorizing reams and reams of stuff. So my favorite subject in high school was physics because you just had to remember some – well, you had to understand some formulas and the rest of it just came along because it was logical. Um, but vet science was a lot of memory work. And um, and then when I graduated, I kind of went, I'm never studying again because that was so awful. Um, and that's – Part of the reason why I fell into acupuncture, when I was in final year, um, there was a evening seminar and it was Dr. Ulrika Wirth, who was a pioneer in acupuncture, who came and gave us a talk. And what she said resonated with me because I went, oh, mum talks about this because a lot of it was, you know, um, this sort of meat is cooling, this sort of meat is warming. The, the, the Chinese medicine kind of principles is, is how a lot of Asians live their life. They don't think of it as medicine. It's just part of life. And I went, oh, this is interesting. It's, it's resonating with me because of, of my, um, my heritage. Um, so when I graduated, there was a, I think there was a, a workshop or a conference, and I thought, well, I'll go to that because that's not really studying. I'm never going to study again, remember. And um, and then, then I kind of just fell into it. So, so that was my my journey. And and for me, I studied. Well, I, I I was exposed to it right at the start of my career. So maybe in my second year after graduation was when the first IVAS course was run in Australia. Um, and I thought, oh well, I'll go and do that because it's not like studying. And and that's been the start of my journey. How many how many people were in your vet school class? Uh, fifty, about fifty per year. So it's fairly small in those days. Um, and about half of them came straight out of high school, and the other half came from um, what we call transfer from other courses. So they might have done a year of science, or they've you know very few of them had actually graduated in another degree at that stage. It was mostly they transferred from from science, whether they done a year of science or two and then came over how many women what were what percentage women i was about half 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 at that time um and now i think you know maybe about five or six years ago i was maybe asked to do a talk for the students and somebody mentioned you know one of the male students was organizing it, and i said well who's that and they and they said well there's only three of them so so they were at that stage, three male students and maybe 90-something or other female students. So it's kind of changed a lot in, um, oh, sure. yeah. in, in that time. What kind of practice did you go into after you graduated? Um, small animal practice, close to home. 
I kind of applied, you know, like a lot of people, mixed practice and and those sort of things, but um, didn't didn't wasn't successful there. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to work in small animal practice, I might as well work in one that was close to home, so I could save money and still live at home and things. So so I did. It was a little practice, um, one and a half vet practice. So so the the boss was, you know, he gave me a little bit of guidance but not a heap. And and the thing he really taught me was a lot of practical first principles. It's like, you know, there's a lot of science out there and there's a lot of diagnostics, but see this cabinet? These are the drugs you have. And that's what that's the limit of your your um treatment options. Um and he was also very good at talking with the public. So I learned a lot of um communication skills he um he wrote in the paper for the paper the 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 age which is a melbourne paper and he also had a radio talk show so you know i learned i learned how to explain things to clients um and a lot of a lot of basic sort of stuff i remember coming back from a evening seminar and saying oh we learned all about external fixatures can we buy some of this equipment and he goes we've already got it the next time we had a dog with a broken leg he gets the pins out and then he gets the car bog out sticks it all together and it worked (laughs) (laughs) um so were you at that practice when you took the ivis course yes yes so he was open enough to let me do it and encourage me in it. Um, and, you know, another thing he used to say to me was never be ordinary, Kim, because I remember in, in those days I was, I was already keen on riding my push bike and I wanted to ride my push bike to work and it was maybe a 40-minute ride and my mum said, you can't ride a bike, it's not, um, it's not good enough, you know, people got to respect you and you've got to go in the car. And my boss said, Kim, it doesn't matter what you come in as long as it's not an ordinary car. You can be you, you need to stand out. And and he was a very flamboyant guy, you know, he wore a bow tie and had a big bushy beard and stuff like that. So we said, just don't be ordinary. So he gave me permission to ride a bike and I did. <laughs> and, and I guess I've never really since. been ordinary. <laughs> yeah. And and you've been doing it ever since, right? Correct. Well, I've actually chosen not to own a car and probably haven't had a car for about 10 years. So, um, and this is while the kids were growing up. So, you know, they were starting high school. No, they were uh, grade three and grade five then. And, and it wasn't until their latter teenage years that I suddenly realized that not owning a car actually gave my kids a lot more independence. I realized I wasn't a mum's taxi and that they learnt the skills to ride where they needed to go. They learnt how to take public transport and they learnt how to ask for lifts from their friends, you know, if they were going to a basketball game or something like that. We did the carpooling thing. So when they moved out of home and, and they moved into a shared accommodation with a friend of theirs in Melbourne, I didn't have to worry about them because we'd already spent many years taking the train up to Melbourne and riding around on our bikes to get places. Um, yeah, so you never know when um, when you make one decision what the outcomes are. You bet. 
Do you, do you, um, do you feel safe as a cyclist there? Well, I grew up riding in Melbourne where there were no bike paths, lots of cars, terrible infrastructure for cycling, and you learnt to ride scanning, you know, 360 degrees around your head if you could to watch out for danger. So I am used to to anticipating where problems could arise. Um, saying that, I've probably had three or four minor accidents, so luckily nothing major that's landed in hospital or anything like that. Um, and my kids being young, young adults – are you know have this bomb proof um, persona about them, and where they work in their part time job, the, um, the the uniforms dark blue, and they wear black pants, and they've got a little light at the back of their bike. And when they ride home, you know, I go, "You've got to wear your safety vest," and they go, "No, Mum, we've got a light. Everyone can see us." And I go, "Think of it as your grandmother driving the car behind you, and you can see the look on their face going, "Oh yeah." Maybe they won't see us if it's just one little flashy light. But no, they they still don't wear a safety vest. It's too dorky. Uh huh. I was just going to say, not cool. Not, not cool. cool to, to no. So, what's your setup? Do you do you have a cargo bike, or what? What? How do you get your your stuff back and forth to work? Well, I I'm in the last few years, I mostly work from home. So that's pretty easy. But once a week, I do ride maybe half an hour to get to the clinic. I've got a little metal case that I put my stuff in. And everything is based on the fact that it has to be small and portable. So when I bought a laser, it had to be small and portable. And I had to pay extra, a little bit extra for it. Um, You know, my electro simulator is also small. And and that's really my number one criteria for when I buy things, whether it's small and portable and I can put it on my bike. But I am am Chinese by race. So I think I've inherited the transport on a bike gene. And the things that I've managed to transport on a bike have been interesting and amusing for lots of people. You know, I've, I've moved uh, lawn mowers, chairs, and and even yesterday I found a compost tumbler on the nature strip on the side of the road, and I thought, oh well, I'll bring that back. So I tied it to the back of my bike, and it rattled all the way home. Um, and I was actually delivering a canoe paddle to a friend while I when I saw that compost tumbler, so I had to strap that to the top of the bike as well. Um, <laughs> Oh, so, that must have been a yeah. sight. So it's it's the Asian gene because you see you see these pictures of them, you know, carrying their whole family and a pig and everything else on the back of their bike, and I've got a bit of that. Yeah. So are electric bikes catching on down there? They are, um, and I've got my the current bike I ride most of the time is a little folding bike, and a lot of people ask me if it's an electric bike, and I go, well, I'm not old enough to ride an electric bike yet, so. I've got a bit of, um, I've got a bit of pride left in me to say that I can still push it all the way, and and of course my daughter being twenty one and and young and strong um, is very disparaging, and she says things like, "Mom, you've got to pedal like you mean it. Put some effort in," uh, or they'll say things like, "I'm not even pedaling. You've got to keep up, Mum." And I say to them. Doesn't it count that when you were really little, I waited for you and I helped you across the road and I, 
you know, I encouraged you. Doesn't that count for anything? And they go, nope, not at all. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> oh, gosh, it should. All right, now I better circle back. So, okay. um, Ivis, how many were in your class when you took the class? I don't know. I've still got the original class list, and I kind of think maybe around 50 again. Yeah. And I did find a, a photo too. So so this was the first class, and, and so you had a few – people that had already been doing it, like Ulrika was part of it um, and and um, our current treasurer, um, Alan Sultan, Sol. So there were a few pioneers in, in that group, people that had dabbled in it for, for a few years. Um, and there were people like me that, that went in and had no clue. But the big advantage I had was – I was just fresh out of vet school, so I was a professional studier, you know. I knew how to sit exams. I knew how to memorize reams of stuff. So going through and doing the course was easy, but it wasn't meaningful. And that's why I think now they have this um, requirement that you have to have had a few years out of vet school before you go and do one of these courses. And I think that's a good thing um, because it took me many years to actually understand and get my head around the meaning of acupuncture, just not just, you know, the landmarks of where to stick needles in. Yeah, you need to be a good veterinarian first and then maybe add that later. Yeah. But so the culturally the the Chinese medicine part probably resonated with you and you had some background, but in I assume your Ivis course was the, the format was similar to mine. So there was some some medical acupuncture there. I suppose that it appealed to the engineer in you, yeah? Yes. So yes, I am and I think my brain is set up to be an engineer. Um, I do come from a long line of engineers. My father was an engineer and all his cousins and my grandfather. And my kids are going to be engineers. And, you know, being a vet is really biological engineering because I then discovered vets have this passion to fix things. I thought it was just me, but no, other vets do too. We all like to fix things and find solutions. <laughs> um, well, you know, there, there you go. I keep rambling on and I forget your original question. Sorry, Neil. <laughs> no, I just, I, I just was just thinking that with, with your engineering kind of slant that the medical acupuncture part of the course would have been appealing. Not really. I, I didn't get, I didn't get what acupuncture meant for many, many years. And it wasn't until I actually did a, um, a graduate diploma in animal chiropractic that I started feeling things with my hands um, and chiropractic is very biomechanical um, and then the osteopath started to come in to the course as well and that's when I started to put the body together and to start feeling the concept of chi and and then things started to fall into place and that's that's how I practice as an acupuncturist and a, and a TCM practitioner these days. Um, you feel things and how they flow and where the imbalance is and why there's an imbalance. You know, um, it's it's a bit like what Dr. Tan says, that the body is a bit like a, a scaffold and you kind of think, yep, it's all got to be balanced and balance is everything. So that's, that's how I do it. And people go, oh, it's all about intuition. And I go, well, you can be taught these things and it's not really intuition, it's it's feeling and it's palpation skills. Do you feel like 
I, I want to talk about chiropractic in depth in a second, but do you feel like um, both of those things, the acupuncture and the chiropractic, I mean, they had to certainly improve your physical diagnosis skills? Absolutely correct. Um, and I don't practice any conventional medicine anymore. And, and part of the reason was that if I did the conventional stuff, then the local vets around me would look at me as a competitor. So I kind of went, no, I'm not going to do that. And then the other reason was I was locuming as a conventional vet once and there was a case, I can't remember what it was, but it might have been a hit by car and had some paralysis and I treated it conventionally. And when the when the um, the the vet who owned the practice came back from his holidays, he goes, did you do any acupuncture? And I went, no, I didn't. And he goes, why not? And I thought, well, it's because I had my Western brain on. And for me, I have difficulty swapping between the Western brain and the Eastern medicine type of thing. So I kind of went, I have to pick one and just stay with that. So that's what I've done. Um, and I have a healthy relationship with with all the clinics around me. You know, I get a lot of referrals from them. Um, and and that's that's worked quite well. See, I've forgotten the original question again. <laughs> no, that's good. I want to. I want to ask you about RMIT and and how you fell into the chiropractic thing and what that course was like for you. Okay, so the story is that I didn't actually choose to be an acupuncturist. It was part of my um, repertoire of tools as a as a general practice vet. And I got to the stage in my life where I've been working for about five years, and I kind of thought, well, what do I want to do? And my two interests were acupuncture and wildlife medicine. So I moved at that stage to Canberra and I was locuming. Um, so because I was new to the place, I went to visit people that I had a link to. And one of these people was a vet by the name of Dr. Rebecca Palmer. And she was also in the original IVAS course. And that's how I knew her, but she was one of the pioneers. And she had a vision to set up a, uh, a complementary medicine practice and that was maybe 1995 or six, so pretty early on. Um, and I said hello to her and all these things. And then within a few months, I sadly discovered that she had terminal cancer. And she asked me to look after her practice for her. Well, I knew she had cancer, didn't know it was terminal then. And then four months later, she passed away. And in that time that I was looking after the practice, I also fell pregnant with my son, my first first child, and I had really bad morning sickness. But when I when I worked as a locum in general practice, I'd be throwing up all the time. Then I discovered if I did Rebecca's work with the acupuncture, I didn't throw up. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. But I continued her practice and her husband asked me to uh, to to continue with it because that was Rebecca's vision. So I kind of inherited the practice um, and and it worked well, you know, being able to work from home in a little practice with, with little children and that sort of stuff. But clients kept asking me who to go to for chiropractic and at that stage I knew how to spell the word. That was about it. I had no clue what it was about at all. And And then another, you know, moment – where, you know, crossroads happen. I was at a uh, postgraduate foundation course in endocrinology 
And the director of the course at that stage, I don't know, even know how the conversation happened. Maybe he asked me what I did and, and he said, you know, there's a course starting at RMIT and it's the first course in the world for a postgraduate um, degree. And I went, oh, all right. I might know more about it than just how to spell the word. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go and see what it's like. And if I don't like it, well, I've just done the first workshop. It's no problem. So I went to the course and it just blew me away. This concept of health rather than disease, of wholeness, um, was just mind-blowing. Um, so so I stuck with it. Again, I was one of the worst in the class because I had no skills and because it was the first time, you know, the people that had done Sharon Willoughby's courses and and there were there were chiropractors there, human chiropractors that was that were doing the animal animal component. But um, I tell people that if you look at the five elements, I'm very much a wood element, and if I was a dog, I would be a Jack Russell. And I don't have any skill in life except I never give up. <laughs> so this was me persevering with it. You know, like a dog with a bone, just keep going. You're not particularly fast. You're not particularly strong. You don't have any other talent, but you just keep going. And, and that's what I did. Um, this is where I am today. So I didn't choose any of these directions in part in life, but, you know, it's the journey. And, and now with a bit of wisdom under my belt, I understand about this journey and I'm just open to opportunities, I guess. <laughs> What was it like being in class with chiropractors? Well, some of them were quite intimidating because, you know, there's, again, there's a whole spectrum of chiropractors. There are people that think you can resurrect the dead. So they're quite extreme. And I sat next to one of those and, and got my brain turned inside out. And then there are people that this is their job and, you know, this is how the body's put together. So, and that's, that's, what I do and and it's it's a very powerful um powerful combination where you have so now when we teach the course it's open to vets chiropractors and osteopaths and it's three different professions coming together and we say you've got to leave your shit behind at the door and come in and learn from each other and that collaboration that opening of minds and sharing is is amazing um again you know a, a turning point in my my concept of wholeness was when when I started the course, my son was six months old, and when I finished the course, my daughter was six months old. So in in between that, I was pregnant and I had my daughter, and so on and so forth. And in one of the workshops, my daughter was maybe three weeks old, and I came along because I was determined to continue. And she was such a brand new baby. She was all squished and, and you know, still quite newborn. And in one lunchtime in a 10-minute session, one of my colleagues who's an osteopath changed the shape of her head because she'd been squished out and she was all blobby. And he changed the shape of her head and we went, oh, my God, what is that about? It's it's just mind-blowing. So I've, I've, I've pursued that for many years. Um, and now I liken it to me being a potter and I've got this clay in front of me and the clay is telling me what shape it wants to be in. 
and I'm following the um, the feel of that clay and and shaping it to what it you know to to how it feels. And this is what I do with my dogs when I feel the dog. I kind of think, well, this is what it's asking me to help it to do. So I'm I'm a facilitator, and I'm not directing the journey. And I think for our mental health, it's a very important concept because. I think Western medicine is all about who's in charge. When you go through vet school, if when you know when you go to a doctor, the doctor tells you what's wrong, and they give you the pills or the or or the you know the surgery to fix it. The concept of um, working as a team is not really there, and so for a doctor or a vet, they're responsible for that health of that that patient. And that's a lot of that's a lot of responsibility, and and through this journey, I've learned that if you're a facilitator and you listen to what the animal wants to tell you, the only really you know the only body that can heal it heal is is the patient. The patient's doing the healing, and if you facilitate that and you listen to what the directions are, then there's not that huge responsibility on you. And you work as a team. You know, I work as a team with the patient and the owner and myself, um, and we share the load. And I think that's a lot better for our mental health. You bet. Um, and you did rehab training then too. Correct. Um, I did. We in in our chiropractic course and in the refreshers, we do cover a little bit of of, of rehabilitation, and. Um, my first teacher in rehabilitation was a colleague of mine that had done the animal chiropractic course, Dr. Tony Lynch, and we're forever grateful to her for that. And she went over to the States to, to do some of the early courses. Um, and she gave us some concepts, which was logical and made sense. And, um, and, and I think the example she used was of a cruise ship. So I used that for many years. And then I had a client come and it had been four weeks post-surgery for her border collie and I said to her, so what have you been doing? And she goes, I've been walking to the letterbox. And I said, Anne? And she said, that's all I've been doing. That's all the vet said I was allowed to do, walk to the letterbox and back. That's it. And this is, you know, four weeks down the track. And I thought, oh, my goodness, we need to, we need to educate our vets out there that it's more than that. So that was probably my first lecture that I ever made. And um, and after I presented it, some vets came up to me and said, you know, in some books it still says to keep them in the cage for six weeks. So we need to move beyond that. And, and that was many, many years ago. Um, I think my kids were 10 then, so maybe 12, 15 years ago, that we started on that journey and obviously now, you know, the rest of the veterinary profession hopefully have caught up to this concept um, and and they have embraced it. But I did the CRI course maybe three or four years ago and to this day I don't actually know why I signed up but I just turned up and I went, I'm here and I have learned a lot from it. I've put together more protocols in my head and more tools in my toolbox um and and it's another another part of my journey i guess where was that course when you took it um 
I don't go far from home. So the course CRI, the Canine Rehabilitation Institute, came to Australia. And again, I did the first course. So that was, I think Christine Zink came to Sydney for the first workshop. And since then, CRI have moved to Brisbane as their base. Um, so I did that course. I did the did the internship in Australia um, and and it was kind of around the time where the kids were going through the end of high school so I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to go overseas for too long or anything like that and um, um, so I was lucky enough I did all my courses in Australia um, I didn't have to didn't have to venture far that's good so at what point did you start your own practice um when I inherited that practice in Canberra in the early days, I worked from home. I worked solely from home with my two little kids and I never worked after four o'clock because then it was witching hour. Although I did have one client that said, if I bring dinner, will you see my dog? And I went, okay. <laughs> so we did a swap, <laughs> except the kids didn't like the dinner, so I still had to cook it. Um, oh. But then I realized so I was in Canberra for five years and then we moved to Geelong where I am now. And I realized that working from home when you're super tired as a mum with young kids was a bad idea because it did my head in. I, you know, I only I didn't get to talk to anybody else. I didn't get to interact with any of my colleagues. So I moved here to, to Geelong and um and I approached Dr. Ulrika Wirth and was able to, to um, offer my services through her practice to start with. Um, and maybe I wish people would ask me when things happen because I don't ever remember them. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago I moved my practice. Not long after Ulrika retired and sold her practice and things like that, then I moved everything back to home but I'm very conscious of not just working from home so one day a week I work at a practice um, that is that is a totally conventional practice but I did persuade one of the partners there that they could incorporate rehabilitation into their program um, and and at this stage I have trained one of their vet nurses and she's fully qualified with the CRI program and they've got one other vet that is um, partway through the Tennessee program, but then that got that got postponed because of COVID. So it keeps me, you know, it's, it's a good balance. I go there once a week. I see lots of other vets and vet nurses, and I eat their donuts and their chocolate, and then I come home. <laughs> <laughs> you ride home. I ride home. Correct. Yes, That's I ride good. everywhere. How has COVID changed your practice? Well, it didn't. It didn't change um, my interaction in going out because I, I, you know, I don't go out to parties or anything like this. The practice moved from the little clinic I have as part of my house to being outside in my driveway, um, and I got really, really busy. For some reason, you know, and vets all over have noticed this be, that that people started to pay attention. To their to their patient, their sorry, their pets. Um, they noticed there were things wrong. They took them to the vet. They adopted kittens and puppies. 
Um, so vets became really busy and I became even busier. And unfortunately, it was kind of a bad mix because I didn't get to go away and I didn't get to have a break because I'm also a scout leader and I go away on camps and take the kids here and there and we do lots of activities. But I didn't do much of that. It was it was all on Zoom. So I kind of just worked and worked and worked. Um, and because it was outside and it was coming into winter, it was getting colder and colder and I was born in the tropics and I say to people I should have stayed there because I get chillblains really badly. So this year was the worst chillblains I ever had, but I survived. Um, and I'm still working outside, getting lots of vitamin D and being Asian and being a vet, we're not really into people anyway. So that one and a half meter distancing was, was fine like don't get close to me and it's funny because when I watch tv now and I see people hugging and kissing I think oh my god you're way too close and it's like it's a it's a sitcom from the 90s you know (laughs) yeah uh and you've done so you've done some volunteering too with organized medicine associations and such yes um I think volunteering is really in my blood which I didn't realize at the start uh, when I was in university, I was the secretary of the swimming club and the bike club and the this and that. And when the kids were little, we used to help out with the bike club in Canberra. We'd, you know, there was not much that I could do with two little kids with me, but we could empty the the waste paper bin and sharpen pencils and stuff like that. Um, and then I helped out a lot in the primary school years with my kids. I think when I left their primary school, I gave all my jobs to eight different people. And there were lots of kids there that were absolutely certain that I was a teacher or part of the staff. And they go, no, no, Kim's not actually part of the school. She's just a volunteer. Um, (laughs) But then then I discovered scouting. My son was the first to get into scouting and he enjoyed it a lot. And then his sister, who's very close to him, wanted to join too. Um, and then I went, oh, my God, what am I going to do now the kids are in scouting? And one of the parents said, well, you know, if you come in as a volunteer leader, then you get a discount on their fees. And and money was a bit tight then because I was a single mum and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it was also a way of us to get out into the outdoors because I chose not to own a car. So this is my way of being able to still enjoy the outdoors. And the kids have moved on. They're independent. They're still in scouting, but I've stayed in scouting too. And and I'm a venture scout leader with the 14 and 18 year olds. Um, and I found it really rewarding because when they're teenagers, they kind of don't really, you know, they're trying to move away from their parents and they don't particularly like school, but most of them appreciate the fact that we're volunteers for them. And and we're, you know, spending our time on their behalf. So they respect us. And when things are good, they're great. But again, when you've got some teenagers with issues, I kept saying it's beyond my pay grade to 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 deal with this issue. And and my daughter said, Well, this is what teenagers are. I did tell you not to do it. <laughs> but anyway, I'm still there and I do enjoy it. Um and interestingly, you know, it's one of these Facebook things that I happened to click on one day and it was about 
Dharma type. So I don't even know why I clicked on it. And it asked you, you know, which picture you like better and all these sort of quiz type things. And at the end of it, it told me I was, I think I was a merchant. And to feel meaningful in my life, I have to perform charity. And I kind of clicked then and I went, oh, that's why I do what I do because I need to do it. It's part of who I am. So there you go. Wonderful. Wonderful. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? Mm, I don't know. That's You're the person asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think we covered it. It was great. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, I Neil. I love getting, getting to know you a little better. And congratulations on a, on a wonderful career. Thanks, Neil. All right. Talk I to you soon. I am honored. Okay. okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.